Well, today we're going to continue in our series of messages on the life of Joseph, and uh, today we're going to pick up where we left off last week as we are studying just sort of the background, the historical context, the Sitzem Laban, the Germans would call it. What was Joseph's situation in life as he appears on the biblical scene, on the narrative of Joseph? What, what is going on in his life and in his background that we read in Genesis 37 that will help us understand the climax and the pinnacle of his life in Genesis chapter 50, verse 20, when it says, but you meant this for evil, but God has meant this for my good. So what was the evil that Joseph experienced so that he would say, you meant this to harm me, but God has meant this uh, to bless me? Well, Genesis chapter 37 tells us what is going on. Last week, we looked at the fact that he was the favorite child of his dad, Jacob, And Jacob was a passive father because he gave favoritism to one when he neglected the other ten. Of course, Benjamin would be born later on, and there would be twelve brothers, many sisters. And here you have the twelve tribes of Israel. And Joseph is the favorite son. He has the coat of many colors. He has that tunic, and he wears it proudly. In fact, uh, the Bible says that he is given this tunic, this coat of many colors. He has these dreams where God gives him these dreams where all of his family and the nations of the world will literally bow down to Joseph. And now Joseph, a 17-year-old teenager, and I don't know if it's very wise to tell your older brothers that one day all of you are going to bow down to me, but that's what he did in chapter 37, 5 through 11. He told them, listen guys, y'all are going to bow down. I don't understand it, but this is the dream I had. I believe this dream is of God. And so they rejoiced so much with him, they tried to kill him. That's what they did. They, the Bible says they eyed him with the green-eyed monster of envy and jealousy, which boiled to hatred and revenge, and now it reaches a climax, an apex of murder. And that's where we pick up the scene today. J- Jacob, the father, tells Joseph the son, you know, your, your brothers, my sons, have been gone for a little while. Why don't you go from Hebron, where we are, and go about 50 miles north to Uh, Shechem, and check on the brothers, and come back and give me a good report. And so we pick up the narrative, and he goes to Shechem, but they're not there. And the man said, well, they've departed from here in Shechem, and well, I heard them say, let's go to Dothan. Now, Joseph went after his brothers and found them in Dothan. Now, Dothan's an interesting city. It literally means, in the Hebrew, it means two cisterns, or two wells. And so that makes sense, doesn't it, church, that the ten are trying to find some water for their sheep or their goats or whatever they're herding. They are shepherds, and they're, they're looking. They didn't find any in Shechem, so they go 20 more ni- miles north to Dothan. And while they're in Dothan, maybe they're a little exasperated. You know, maybe they're hot and tired and sweaty and grimy, and the last thing they want to see on the horizon is him, and here he comes. He just comes bebopping along. He's got his coat on. Yeah, I think he wore that to bed. I, really, I think he wore that coat every opportunity he got, maybe just to show, hey, I am my dad's favorite. I can't help it. It's just the way it is. And so he appears on the horizon, and when they saw him from afar, even before he came near them, they conspired against him to kill him. And then they, now the antecedent for they would be the brothers, all right? These are flesh and blood brothers. These are half-brothers, actually. And then they said to one another, look, there he is. 
The dreamer is coming. Come therefore and let us now kill him and cast him into some pit. And we shall say, well, some wild beast has devoured him. I mentioned earlier that verses 5 through 11, it tells us why they called him, why they called him the dreamer because he was a man of dreams. God had given Joseph dreams, and he will give him more dreams in the future, and that was God's supernatural way of speaking to Joseph. And by the way, God still does this, especially in countries that are predominated by the Islamic religion. We're seeing and we're hearing miraculous supernatural stories of God appearing to them in dreams and visions, and many of them are coming to faith in Christ. But in this case, they are not rejoicing with his dreams. In fact, they are eaten up with envy. It's boiled to the point now of revenge, and they're going to hatch a plot of murder. But verse 21 says, Reuben comes on the scene. Now Reuben, remember he is the firstborn of Jacob. Reuben heard it, and he delivered him out of their hands, and he said, wait a minute guys, let us not kill him. And Reuben said to them, shed no blood, but cast him into this pit which is in the wilderness, and Do not lay a hand on him that he might deliver him out of their hands and bring him back to his father. So it came to pass when Joseph had come to his brothers that they stripped him, Joseph, of his tunic. I find that very interesting. The very first thing they did, these brothers who are eaten up with jealousy, man, they get an opportunity, they're away from home. Maybe nobody's watching, and they can, just, they can just lay hands on him and do exactly what they've been longing to do for him, and that is to strip him of that nasty, multicolored coat because they thought they ought to be wearing it. I tell you, jealousy unchecked does, does amazing things. I mean, it can eat you up, and that's why we call it the green-eyed monster. And so they took the tunic of many colors that was on him. They took him, and they cast him into a pit. And the pit was empty, and there was no water in it. So Reuben comes along as the firstborn, and now I know for all of his foibles and moral failures, sleeping with his uh, father's uh, wife is pretty immoral. I get that, what Reuben did. He actually did that. Slept with his stepmom, kind of like what they did in the book of Corinthians. You know, the Bible's really amazing, isn't it? I mean, the Bible just tells it like it, like it is, and what people actually did and do. But Reuben, he, he, feels, he feels bad for Joseph, so he says, let's don't lay hands on him and kill him. Let's throw him in this pit. And Reuben's thinking, well, after everything kind of settles down, I'll come back in the pit. I'll get Joseph, and I'll take him home. But that doesn't happen as the narrative continues. And they sat down to eat a meal. <laughs> that fascinates me, by the way. We're going to throw him in the pit, and we're going to sit down and eat. That's amazing. How callous. How heartless. And these are his own flesh and blood. Then they lifted their eyes, and they looked, and there was a company of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead. Now, Gilead stretches down east of the Jordan, comes down the Sea of Galilee through the Jordan River on into near the Dead Sea area. It's a beautiful, lush area, and they, they come from this place, and there they come with the camels, and the Ishmaelites are bearing these commodities. They have spices, and, and they have balm. And, and keep that text up there, because I was reading understand a little bit more about balm. It's mentioned six times uh, in the Bible. It was a uh, therapeutic kind of resin that they took, and it had this uh, medicinal value to it, uh, balm did. And it also was used as a sedative to help 
people with their insomnia. Back, back then, they had Tylenol PM, amen? They had it back then, and they used it. And they're bearing these spices, and they've got balm, and then they got myrrh. Remember the three gifts they brought to Jesus, gold, frankincense, and myrrh? From the rock rose, it was used as a perfume and also as a deodorant. They had right guard in the Old Testament. Amazing. And they come bearing gifts. So they've got their commodities, they've got their tares, their goods, and they're on their way to carry them down to Egypt. So Judah said to his brothers, all right, so now he's got another ally in Judah. Judah says, what profit is there if we kill our own brother and conceal his blood? Come and let us sell him to the Ishmaelites. Now, Reuben's not on the scene, okay? Somewhere, Reuben, I don't know what Reuben's doing. He's over here taking a nap or something, but he's not on the scene because he's allowed, he's allowed, this plan is allowed to happen. Let's come sell him to the Ishmaelites and let not our hand be upon him, for after all, he is our brother. He is our flesh. And well, the old brothers, they consented and they listened. Then the Midianite traders passed by, so the brothers pulled Joseph up and lifted him out of the pit. Is he naked? Half naked? Embarrassed? Surely. Betrayed? Hurt? They sold their own brother to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. By the way, that's $145.60, the price of a handicapped slave. That's what they got for the young, strapping 17-year-old brother, Joseph. Betrayed, hated, sold into slavery for 150 bucks, and then they took Joseph to Egypt. Now, Reuben comes back on the scene, and he comes to the pit, and indeed, Joseph is not there. And so he tears his clothes, and he returns to his brothers, and he said, the lad is, is no more, and, and what shall, where, where shall I go? What shall I do? Do you, do you hear the pathos? Do you hear the concern? He is concerned because he's the oldest, and he's responsible. How many elder brothers and sisters do we have in here? Who are the oldest in the family? You, you, feel, you feel that, don't you? You feel that responsibility, the weight, the burden, the boulder of that. So they took Joseph's tunic. They got an idea here now. They're going to, they killed a kid, a goat. They dipped the tunic in the blood, and then they sent the tunic of many colors, and they brought it to their father, and they said, we have found this. Do you know whether it is your son's tunic? They won't even call him the brother. They won't even say, do you know this is Joseph, our dear brother? No. Is this your son? You, you, do y'all feel the sarcasm in that? Do, do you hear the a little bit of hatred in that. It's your, it's your son. And he recognized it. Jacob said, it is my son's tunic. A wild beast has devoured him without doubt. Joseph is torn to pieces. Then Jacob tore his clothes. And this, is, by the way, is a, is a way of expressing profound sorrow, remorse, and grief. And he put this like a gunny sack. Have you ever seen that coarse garment? He puts this sackcloth on his waist. And he mourns for his son for many days. And all of his sons and all of his daughters arose to comfort Jacob. And he refused to be comforted, and he said, For I shall go down into the grave to my son in mourning. Thus his father wept for him. And the last verse we'll look at today. Now the Benianites, remember, they're coming out of Gilead, 
they come bearing balm and spices and myrrh and Joseph. And they came to Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh and captain of the guard, and we're just suspended to wait for the rest of the narrative. So today what I want us to do here at Great Hills, I want us to take just a little bit of time, and there are many things that we can glean from this pericope, from this passage of Scripture, but there's really two things. I feel like the Lord has just really put on my heart. I I feel like this, this week I kept working on the sermon and tweaking the sermon, and even until I guess this morning, I finally felt like I, I got it to where I'm, I'm – y'all ever get that way when you're writing a sermon? You, you ever feel that way? You just feel, I finally got it, and I just felt like I was ready to give birth this morning. I was just ready to come, and I think that's why I just want everything to go right. You know what I'm saying? I just want the music to be right. I want the sound. I just want everything to be right, and, and God says sometimes everything's not right. You just got to get over it, get over your ADD, get over your freakiness, and just preach on. So that's what I'm going to do. All right. Did you just call yourself a freak? I think I did. So let's, let's just keep on. The plight of Joseph. What, is it, what do I mean by the word plight? Uh, the difficulty, the sadness, the horrifying things that have happened to him. And there are many. As we've walked through the, um, the text, he's 17 years of age. We think maybe his mom's already died and his brothers hate him. He doesn't have any clothing on now, probably just something around his, his waist. And, and he, is, he is leaving Dothan, going through Shechem, waving goodbye to Hebron. You with me? And he's going for many days' travel to Egypt. By the way, how do you think a slave of the Hebrews is going to be treated in a caravan on their way to Egypt? It's probably the very grace and protection of God that he is not abused. And so he makes his way down to Egypt, and he is in a predicament. How about y'all? Anybody here today in a predicament? Anybody? Thank you, Brother Mike. God bless you. I love you. So honest. I wish all of us were like that. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand, but you would say, well, Pastor, I'm, I'm not like Joseph, but I tell you, I've got myself in a way. Whether it's my marriage, it's my kids, or whether it's my finances or lack thereof, it's my job, it's my moral life, it's the addiction I have to pornography, it's, it's just all kinds of things I've got going on in my life, and I am in a mess. Now, let me ask you something. Will you let your mess determine who you are and your future? Now, I want you to really think about that question, because all of us are going to be dealt some tough deals in our life. We're, we're going to be mistreated. Some of us are going to be abused. We're going to be threatened. Some of us are going to be beaten. Some of us are going to be cheated. And some of us are going to experience bankruptcy. Some of us are going to experience some horrific things in our life. But here's the thing, if I learn anything about Joseph, is we don't have to let those circumstances define who we are. We can, by the grace of God and the miraculous intervention of Jesus Christ, we can rise above it, and we can actually take that, that test, and it can be, become part of our testimony, or we can take that mess, and we can watch God work something miraculous out of it. Anybody recognize the name Ben Carson? You know, there was a Ben Carson before we all know who Ben Carson is. When you read his story, and I've read both his books, and I, I love the story of Ben Carson, especially the early years. 
Ben Carson was eight years of age in Detroit, Michigan. His father left him. I don't really know what that would be like to have your own dad say, I'm checking out. Because what y'all don't know is I also have a wife and children in another city. And I choose them over you, Ben, and your mother and your older brother. That's, that's Ben Carson at eight years of age. Elementary school, he, he was having a hard time in, in school. I'll tell you something, dads. When you do stuff like that, your boy is going to have a hard time. Your daughter's going to have a hard time. And Ben Carson's sitting in class, and he's failing class, and the teacher, nitwit that she was, she would have the students stand up and announce their grade to all the class. Grace Collier, let's don't do that as a teacher. She's going, no, we don't do that, Brother Dan. They teach us better at UT, University of Texas, amen. I'm sure they do at Baylor and other places too. It's all, it's all good. All right, so. And little Ben Carson would stand up and basically say, F. And I guess the teacher thought that would motivate the student. And kids can be so mean. And all the kids turned to him and just start laughing at him. But they quit laughing a few months later when Ben Carson got glasses. <laughs> he was a prodigy. Nobody knew it. But he got glasses and he started reading. He goes, oh my. In just a few weeks' time, the very kids who poked fun at him and laughed at him asked Ben Carson for help with their own homework. Ben Carson's mom says, boys, every day or every week you're going to read two books and give me a book report on it. And that's what they did. They watched three television shows a week, all right, just a week. You get three a week. And then you have to, um, you got to study. You, you, you can be what you want to be, and I'm going to encourage you. And she's a strong Christian woman, and she could not read. So she would take their book reports, and she would pretend to read them and make check marks on them. She, she, didn't, she didn't know what it said. You know Ben Carson's story, don't you? Goes to Yale University for four years. Goes to the University of Michigan for four more years in med school. And then he's accepted at uh, Johns Hopkins University to study, of all things, to, uh, to be a neurosurgeon. Oh, and by the way, his brother, the, the brother, got his engineering degree at the University of Michigan. Brilliant young men. And Ben Carson finished up his residency there at Johns Hopkins. They hired him, and then he became the chief of, neuro, of pediatric neurosurgery at Johns Hopkins University, and Donald Trump said he was an okay surgeon. He's a nitwit. I just think he's a nitwit. How, how, how do you, how in the world, how in the world do you call a guy an okay surgeon when this guy is a brilliant, brilliant surgeon? So anyhow, guess y'all know who I'm voting for. Anyhow. I'm not telling you who to vote for, I just, I will if you ask me individually and privately, but I'm not publicly. I, they say I'll get in trouble for that, but. I wonder if people looked at Ben Carson's life and said, man, that guy will amount to nothing. Just look at him. Abandoned by his father. He can't even read for heaven's sake. I'm sure he's going to end up in prison. But the thing that happened to um, to Ben Carson, 
is when he accepted Jesus Christ as his Lord and Savior. You know what Donald Trump pointed out when he tried to kill somebody? He actually did. He took a knife and tried to kill his friend, and the knife hit the belt buckle. Now, this was when he was a youngster. This was when he was, certainly didn't know Christ. I mean, he was full of rage and full of anger, and, and, and God redeemed him. And just like God redeems you and God redeems me, whenever we say, God, I'm in, I'm in way over my head, Lord, this, the, the, the odds are stacked squarely against me, and you got a choice. I got a choice. Will I allow this to destroy me and devastate me? Or I say, oh, God in heaven, work a miracle, oh God, in my life. And God will. God can. God does. I see it in Joseph's life. I, I see it in Ben Carson's life. And I see it in many of your lives and in my own life. The Bible says in Hebrews 5, 8, that even the Son, Jesus, He learned obedience by the things which He, anybody fill in the blank on that? suffered, right? Some of you look at me today and you say, well, pastor, is there any other way? And you know, there's not. There's no other way to be conformed to the image of Christ and to be broken. There's just really no other way. Maybe y'all can ask God, why do you choose the way of suffering the way of the cross, even for your own son. And, and the only thing I can, I can gather from that is, God's just smarter than I am. God just knows things that we don't know. And I do know this, that were it not for the cross, and the crucifixion, and the torture, and the beating, if it weren't for that, there would be no resurrection and ascension, and there would be no salvation. See, he too was sold by his own people, the Jews, to the Gentiles. He too was sold for a few pieces of silver. He too felt abandoned, and even at the point of the cross where he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He too experienced all of those things, and yet up from the grave, He arose, and that's why you and I are here today, because God works through suffering, hardship, pain, agony, difficulty. My my doctor and I were talking just this week, Dr. John Murray and I were talking about pain. I've been experiencing some strange pain, nerve pain, and and we talked and we, we agreed that pain's actually a good thing. Some of you are going, that's the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard in my life. Pain's an awful thing. No, no, it's not. Because pain is God's way of telling you something's wrong. And I never would have known to check what's going on up here had the pain not, had I not experienced the pain down here. And many of us may not understand the, the pain and the suffering emotionally we're going through now because, you see, God is trying to draw us up to something even greater. Pain isn't. C.S. Lewis is right. It's a, it's a megaphone. God uses pain as a megaphone to, to arouse us and get our attention. F.B. Meyer said this about Joseph. He said, little did Joseph think that hereafter he should look back on that day, that day, betrayed by his brothers, sold into slavery, stripped nearly naked. Never would he imagine on that day one of the most gracious links in a chain 
of loving providences. Or that he should ever say, be not grieved nor angry with yourselves, my brothers. God did send me here to Egypt before you. It is very sweet as life passes by to be able to look back on dark and mysterious events and to trace the trace the hand of God where we once saw only the malice and the cruelty of man. That's powerful. The providence of God where we once… See, what I find oftentimes is people in the midst of pain and when the, when the marriage starts getting rocky, they, they leave. When the church starts having some troubles, they, they bolt. And what, what they miss is that chrysalis moment. In the chrysalis moment when the caterpillar becomes that beautiful butterfly, when you manipulate that, when you try to extricate that, that larva and you try to help it and you think, well, I'm going to help God and I'm just going to get this divorce or I'm just going to move on to this other church or I'm just going to do something else. And what you do is you actually destroy what God is doing. God uses pain and difficulty because, listen, unless that larva Unless it crystallizes in there, unless it dies, basically, it never can come to be a butterfly. I know this is hard preaching, guys. I know this is, this is kind of Christianity 401. But you know what? That's what happens when you preach the Bible. The Bible is an amazing document. Who said the Bible is boring? They must have never read it. Number two is the prayer for help. Uh, two things I gather out of this, this plight, this painful circumstance, and then the prayer for help. Surely Jacob and Joseph cried out to God for help. Verse 34, do you remember seeing it in his desperation? Jacob, he tore his clothes. He would not eat. He, he put on that gunny sack. And, and whenever you read, when people do that in other places in the Bible, oftentimes they are lifting up their voice to God. And they say, oh God, have mercy on me. I've lost my son. And, and I would argue with you, greatly argue with you, if you don't think Joseph is praying and calling out to God in that pit, then, then you don't know Joseph. He is. He is crying out, God, help me, God, please deliver me. Chuck Swindoll has written a great book on Joseph, read it. It's fantastic. I highly recommend it. He said, no action is more powerful than prayer. I realize that the biblical story does not state that Jacob turned to God in prayer, but surely Surely he could have done so. How else could he have gone on with his life? Where else could he have turned for hope? The same thing could be said of you and me. Prayer brings power to endure. Broken, hollow lives can find new strength to recover. It's at this point, I would say, that Joseph, without question, turned his situation over to God, even as the caravan made its way toward Egypt, surely he knew. Even at 17, he knew that his only hope would come through God's faithful intervention, surely. He cried out to the one who alone was sovereign and in control of his future, and surely must we, end of quote. calling out to God in prayer. And I invite you to do that today. I really do. Some of you need to say, God, just be honest. Say, God, I don't know what you're doing. I, I can't understand. I don't, I don't understand. 
It's amazing how God is. He, maybe God would just say, I don't really want you to understand. I just want you to trust in me. This past week when we took old Andrew Jackson off the $20 bill, I thought, well, who is this Harriet Tubman? You know what I mean? They put her face now on the $20 bill, or they will, and they've taken old Hickory off, and I'm thinking, well, what, what's going on here? Until I begin to read about her life. What a remarkable Christian woman was Harriet Tubman. She was born in the 1820s. You say, well, in your research, did you not find out when she was born? She was born in the 1820s. That's all they know. There are no birth certificates or anything like that. They said she was born in 1820 as a slave in the South and subjected to all the cruelty of a slave in the South in the 1820s. She escaped uh, through the Underground Railroad, and she was a feisty woman. She began to help others escape from the South to the North, became an abolitionist, a Republican, and a pistol-toting woman. That's who she was. Getting a lot of my politics out today. Sorry about that. But anyhow, she's a… She also led a a, a small army into battle. Harriet Tubman did. I mean, this, this is a pretty remarkable lady. But the greatest thing about her was she was a follower of Jesus. Thomas Garrett, one of her dear friends, says, I've never met any person of any color who had more confidence in the voice of God as spoken directly to her soul than Harriet Tubman. She said one time, she said, I was free, but there was no one to welcome me in the land of freedom as I escaped. I was a stranger in a strange land, and my brothers and my sisters and my friends were still there in slavery in the South, but I was free, and they should be free. I would make a home in the North, and I would bring them there, God helping me, and I prayed, and I said to the Lord, and this is, this is the way they've written it, the Lord, D-E-L-A-W-D, all right? That's what she said. God, I pray I'm going to hold steady onto you, and I know you'll see me through. God, I'm going to hold steady onto you, and I know that you will see me through. Guys, I'm going to tell you, that's powerful theology. She's calling out to God in the midst of her desperation, and she's praying to God, and I'm not going to let my slavery, and I'm not going to let my bondage define me, but God, I'm going to use it. I'm going to use it as a stepping stone to do great things that I believe God is calling me to do. And if it can happen to her, it can happen to you, it can happen to me. We can take difficulty and say, God, use this difficulty to make me be the person that you want me to be. Well, she dies in 1913. Hardly anybody knows who she is. Posthumously, I mean, things began to come out about this lady and and more evidences and, and more documents, and then people are like, this was quite a remarkable person. God has His people, and what a blessing to be chosen of God, to know God, and then to be put in God's school of brokenness, to be shaped and formed and molded to the person He wants us to be. I've made this statement many times. I want to make it again. A person with little integrity and character in a great assignment is disastrous. If you're here today and you say, I want to be used mightily of God, I would caution you before you do 
Make sure you understand what you're doing. You're, you're asking God to, what's the word? Matriculate. You're asking God to matriculate you in His school of suffering so that He can form you to the person He really wants you to be so that you can do mighty exploits for the kingdom of God. So I ask you to bow your heads and close your eyes with me as we close our message today and have a time of invitation. One of my favorite times of the service where we take what we've heard from God's Word and we, we ask the Holy Spirit to make application to us. And some of you, God's been doing that throughout this sermon because God knows about when you were raped and God knows about when you were abused. And God knows about the mistreatment you experienced, and God knows about the molestation. God knows about all that stuff. And though I cannot understand, I'm just going to be honest with you, there are many things I don't understand about theodicy. I do know this. God is still good. God still loves, and God still shapes, and He molds us. I heard somebody say one time, and it's very powerfully so, the problem with living sacrifices is we keep crawling off the altar. God, help us stay on the altar in that place of brokenness. I'm there. I don't know if anybody else is there. I'm there. I'm in a place of brokenness. I'm in a place of utter dependence upon God. I believe our church is there. God, we need God. We need God to rescue We need God to do mighty miracles in our midst just like you do in your marriage. And just like many of you listening on television or listening to us on the internet, you find yourself in a plight, in a bad way, a tough situation. Would you step out in faith today and say, God, I trust you. I don't understand you, but I trust you and I love you. Some of you for the very first time need to lay aside your pride and your way of doing things, and just say, God, here I am, and I'm trusting you as my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. I'm, I'm asking you to be the king of my life, the boss of my life. I confess with my mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord. I believe in my heart God raised Him from the dead, and Lord, I am yours, and I want to be born again. God bless you. I want to tell you, welcome to the family of God. Would you let us know about your commitment? In a moment, we're going to stand up, and we're going to welcome you, and we ask that you come forward. Let us shake your hand. Let us encourage you. Talk to you about believer's baptism. Talk to you about what it means to be a disciple of Christ. And others of you today, this this is a time of decision for you. This is a time, maybe this is the time, that you're in the valley of decision, and the decision you make today on April the 24th will determine the rest of your life. You're going to stay in bitterness. And you're going to stay in jealousy, and you're going to stay in a very, very difficult way for the rest of your life, and you're going to get old, and you're going to get more bitter, and you're going to die unhappy. Or you're going to use this day as the day to say, God, I trust in you. I don't understand, but I'm trusting in you, Lord. I'm giving it over to you. And God, make me to be the man, the woman, the student the single adult, the married couple, God, that you want me to be. Some of you are praying and seeking the Lord for a church home, and in just a few minutes we're going to be teaching a class on, it's called Church at Great Hills. What does it mean to be a member of of Great Hills? And right after the service we'll provide lunch for you, then we'll move right into a time of teaching, and we'll 
We'll invite you to be a part of our church family. Maybe that's you. Maybe that's the decision you need to make today. So let me pray for you with your heads bowed, your eyes closed. Our counselors, our pastors are ready to receive you. Father, thank you for your presence. Thank you, Lord, that you heard our prayer an hour ago that we invited you to come. And Lord, not any distraction, be it visual or audio or anything, God, can prevent the power of God and the Spirit of God using the man of God behind the desk of God, preaching the Word of God. Lord, that is your plan. And God, we praise you for that, that God, you, you win. You always win. Lord, for those who are in the valley of decision today, I pray that you would encourage them and strengthen them. God, I pray before that man or woman leaves this sanctuary today, that God, they will be at peace with you and be at peace with one another, and they will, God, trust in you. They will trust in you. This will be a day, Lord, a day of days. When Brother Joseph and Ben Carson and Miss Tubman spoke to us and changed us by the power of the Holy Spirit, in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Would you stand with me, please? God bless you as you stand. We have our invitation.